skies are darkening and the shadows are gathering. Campaign signs everywhere serve as a grim reminder. You don't know the name of your local state senator or even what district you live in. You tried to buy a costume, but the crowds beat you to it. The only two options left are Captain Jack Sparrow and Sexy Bus Driver. As your spirits sink, we at Mainly History are here to share tales of earlier Mainers who reached out to spirits, trying to communicate with the beyond. Today's show begins with a device used to reach out to the spirit world in the town of Brunswick, and then takes a look at the 19th century mediums and spiritualists who used it. Some people were just having a bit of fun. Others were making more than a bit of money and some were true believers. Parents, check your kids' Halloween candy. Some kids on my block came home with our first ever episode downloads from Cameroon and Ireland. Six continents of mainly history fandom is a lot to fit inside a plastic pumpkin. So let's do this. guest today is Larissa Vigue-Picard, director of the Pajapscot History Center. Larissa, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here for our special Halloween episode of the year. Today, uh, the, the set piece of this discussion is a fantastic item in the Pajepscott uh, History Center collection, and it is called a planchette. Can you tell us a bit about what that is? I sure can. It's a device that once I describe it will be familiar to many people, I think, but in our collection, it dates to the mid to late 19th century. It's specifically in our Schofield Whittier House Museum collection. And that is one of our two house museums and is a home that was owned by three generations of a family and donated to us in the 1980s. The planchette is one of the tens of thousands really of items in the house that was left to us in the house. And it was found in a very elaborate cabinet in their drawing room. So the uh, formal front parlor of the house. It is a wooden device shaped like a shield or a teardrop or a guitar pick with at the point, it has a, it has a pencil on it. And at the back, it has two wheels on casters. And it's one of several parlor type games or objects that they have in the house. But this object in particular was very popular during the spiritualism craze of the mid to late 19th century. Objects like the planchette then, how would the family use this item? Well, it's a great question. We don't have a great deal of information about how 
the Schofield or Whittier family, Schofields in the first generation, Whittiers in succeeding generations, how they actually use this. But we can make some guesses. Um, we can get into the history of spiritualism and how these items, why they were invented and how they were used uh, more broadly. But as far as the family goes, they had many such items in the drawing room, have many such items in the drawing room that were very popular during Victorian times. The Victorians had a lot of much more free time on their hands, especially the upper classes, but, but really all the classes than did previous generations. And so they really enjoyed a lot of different, really what are called parlor games, activities maybe um, at tea time, after dinner in the evening, and so forth. They have a lot of card games. They have uh, backgammon. We have a beautiful backgammon set uh, mm. from the family. They have a stereo opticon, a very elaborate device where you have a photographs that are printed two of the same photograph together on a card that you pass through this lens that makes it look 3D. And um, Oh, like a Viewmaster. Yes. Like some people yes. had from the 80s. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. And <laughs> actually, that's a great you know, comparison analogy, because the planchette is an ancestor of a game that is very well known to people today. Um, the planchette may have been used for fun. I'm guessing it was it was more used like these other types of parlor games by the family. But it may have also been used for more serious purposes. So that the planchette was invented to essentially commune with the spirit world. So it's a device that was created so that a medium or somebody holding the planchette, uh, putting it on top of a piece of paper, could accept messages or dictate messages from a person in the other world and write them out on paper. And because the family were learned people, they were business people, they were um, scientific people. Very, uh, during the second generation, there was a uh, doctor in the family who was a very progressive, um, thoughtful man for his time. And then in the third generation, there was also a doctor. So it's, it, it, it's fairly unlikely that it was really used for these sorts of supernatural purposes. But that's how it, you know, came to exist. That's why mm. it was invented. Well, um, and we do know there are people with advanced degrees who believe pretty <laughs> out there yeah. stuff one way or the other. Um, well, that's so very true. Lest we, yes. yes. <laughs> um, so, okay, interesting. Talking about the, the planchette a bit more. So who invented this? And uh, you said it was a fr uh, French. Who invented this? And Yes. And yeah. It, it actually was a French educator named Alan Kardec. And he was also a proponent of spiritualism, which is a, of course, people have been, you know, believing and communing with spirits going back, obviously, thousands, tens of thousands of years. But the spiritualist craze is something very specific to America and Europe. And 
he invented this actually, well, about a decade or so after the craze had kind of really gotten going in America. He witnessed a seance where a participant, I guess, was tired of listening to the medium try to accept messages from the afterlife by a series of raps or knocking meant to reference letters. So that's what mediums would do at the time. They would Uh. wait for five raps would indicate the letter E. And it just would take a long time that way to spell out a message. So there was a person at a particular oh, say. Yeah, what happens Paris. when somebody wants to go to like the <laughs> zoo or something, right? You're there forever. Yeah. You're there waiting for this message forever. A simple sentence would take yeah. hours. So this person said, hey, how about if we, you know, he grabbed a basket, stuck a pencil in it, turned it upside down, put it on a piece of paper and supposedly there was born a quicker way for the medium to accept messages from the spirit and just sort of move the planchette along the paper and out would come this message or sentence or whatever. So this was in June of 1853, literally that this dates to, and he kind of helped promote the use of it and then there was there was a man, Robert Dale Owen. He was a spiritualist as well and a social reformer. And he brought it to America in 1858. He had seen it used in seances in Paris and brought the idea to the U.S. It was first manufactured kind of on a large scale by a Boston bookseller, G.W. Cottrell, And then it became, you know, it just spread like wildfire and a lot of different booksellers and toy manufacturers began producing them. It's really, it's, it's the precursor of the Ouija board, which many people will probably be familiar with. That was invented in 1891. And that, you know, the idea there was to make it yet even easier to spell out messages because a Ouija board has not only the planchette, but an actual board. They were first made of wood. And I think you can still buy Ouija boards today. They're made by Hasbro. Now, is this my Midwestern in me? We (laughs) called them Ouija boards. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it's spelled O-U-I-J-A. Right. And it, we did, I I think we did too. We meaning myself and my friends uh, playing with them at, you know, over slumber parties and stuff growing yeah. up. So was this our youthful um, mispronunciations or something? Or Well, I mean, it's, I think the J-A is is generally pronounced more like Ja. So we, Ouija board. Uh, okay. uh, but as you say it fast, Ouija board, Ouija board, it sounds like an, you know, Ouija. Uh, okay. Um, and so was the, and- was the, were these boards, were these also French? No, they were created in the U.S. They were created oh. in Maryland. Baltimore, Maryland was the nice. first one. Um, Go Baltimore. By the Kennard, <laughs> the Kennard or Kennard, K-E-N-N-A-R-D, novelty company. And they called it the Wonderful Talking Board. Huh. So these boards had, they have a half moon shape, a series of the you know letters, the letters of the alphabet. They have numbers on them and they have the words yes and no in the upper right and left corners. And 
two or more people lightly put their fingertips on the planchette that comes with the board. And now these planchettes are made out of plastic and they don't have pencils. They just have a a pointer on the front tip and they have felt. So they slide across the board very easily. And you ask a question and you close your eyes and you lightly touch the planchette and it supposedly moves across the board and answers the question. You know, you can answer yes or no questions. You can, you can ask a yes or no question, or you can ask a question that you want it to answer by spelling out something or writing a number or whatever. And if you've ever used one of these, and I have not for many years, but we did have one growing up. Uh, My parents had one in the 1970s and we used it at my slumber parties. There is a sense that the planchette is moving on its own, but there's a very scientific explanation for this. Ooh, and what is that? It is called the ideometer, I-D-E-O motor, ideometer effect. And that's been proven many times. It is basically our subconscious or pre-conscious or whatever part of our brain that is telling our muscles to do something, even though we don't consciously realize it. So a good example of this might be we blink our eyes, but you don't think about, okay, I'm going to blink my eyes. And then you blink your eyes. You just blink your eyes all day long. Or you might, you know, if you look at a lemon, you cut a lemon open and you imagine sucking on it, you might, your throat, your mouth might salivate by its own. You don't say to yourself, now I'm going to salivate. It's this unconscious. I do that um, for sour candy, just thinking about it. See, there you go. There you go. So you're the same concept works with the planchette. The idea is that, you know, you're already, you're in this group of people. You are already kind of psychologically primed to think there's something weird about this tool or whatever. And mm-hmm. your fingers are on the on the board and they are on the planchette and they just very, very lightly, without you even knowing it, might just move it a tiny little bit. And then somebody else's moves it a tiny little bit and so on. And it eventually, you know, it doesn't stay static on the board, in other words. Right. And it seems like it's moving of its own accord, but of course it isn't. We also, in elementary school, we did the thing where a bunch of us would gather around somebody laying on the ground and chant light as a feather, stiff as a board, and use our fingers to pick them up. And then somebody would inevitably say something or mess it up, and then you'd realize they're heavy. I don't know if those are related, but... Well, I think that's a that's a really interesting analogy. I think I remember that. I have vague memories of mm-hmm. that myself, and yeah. and I think you're right. It it is the sort of mind over matter kind yeah. of thing. You know, you the subconscious convinces the yeah. conscious or whatever. Uh, but it is it's fascinating. Human yeah. beings, as we know, are very susceptible to <laughs> different kinds of beliefs. I mean, there yes. are things we want to really believe. Oh, yeah. Now, last question about the operating of the the planchette as compared to the Ouija, the Ouija board, as we're um, (laughs) 
uh, were the planchettes operated by multiple people also, or was it only one person using the planchette with a pen to channel the spirits from the beyond to write things? I think initially it was meant to be one person. So you'd have the medium who had been the person receiving, or if you think of today, people going to a psychic or people, you know, um, watching somebody on stage that is supposedly getting messages from the great beyond. It's the same idea. There is a person who is channeling this, but I think um, it evolved to be, you know, any combination of things. You can only have so many people's hands on this board. I mean, the one we have in the collection is about six and a quarter inches wide by seven and three quarters inches long. So it's not very big. Okay. And the other thing is, if we're going to accept the scientific explanations behind these things, if you have too many hands on the board, presumably the person operating the planchette if they weren't actually getting messages from the spirit world, they were manipulating the board to do what they wanted it to do. And people would have to get pretty good at this. You know, if you try to put this on a piece of paper today and write out a sentence, it's going to look like gobbledygook. I mean, I'm sure people practiced very hard to get good at it. So you'd I'm have sure to they have did. a partner. There's good money in the spirit world. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. oh billion plus dollar industry oh, today, yeah. I'm sure. Many billions. Now, <laughs> you're trying to ruin all this with science, but I was told by <laughs> many faculty members at my Catholic elementary school growing up that messing with Ouija boards, as we were told, is tampering with the occult and you never know what's on the other side. So you stay far away from this stuff. Uh, well, absolutely. Yes. I was, I've, I've read some stuff like that about, you know, people from various religions being very wary of the board. So let's, if we can, uh, if we can talk a bit about the spiritualists and their critics in 19th century Maine and the U S. So you mentioned a few of these spiritualists, you know, Robert Owen, some of these other, uh, some of the spiritualists were quite, a lot of them were like fairly radical reformers. Uh, the spiritualists, you know, had their, had a lot of crossover with the women's rights movement and abolitionists and elsewhere. And they got their start in what was an area called the burned over district of New York. Yes. Uh, from these revivals. So if you could tell us a bit about who these spiritualists were and then maybe why people were skeptical of them and, and who their who their critics were as well. Sure. We would think of it today as something going viral. I mean, that's the best mm. analogy for the for the present day. Is this really was something that started? I don't want to necessarily say innocently, but started in a very specific place and time this particular spiritualist movement we're talking about that kind of blew up in the US and then went over the pond to Europe and so forth. It started in Hydesville, New York, basically by two tweens, we'd call them, uh, 14 and 11 year old. Oh, wow, that's Um, impressive. It's very impressive. And these are girls. And so your point about. Right. So what is their, movement, what are their names? So the, they can yeah. be known for posterity. <laughs> 
Well, Margareta, or Maggie, as she was known, was the 14-year-old, and her sister Catherine, or Kate, was 11. And their last name was Fox. They were referred to as the Fox Sisters. Mm-hmm. And we even have a very specific date, March 31st, literally night before April Fool's Day. Keep that in mind. March mm-hmm. 31st, 1848. So yeah. they decided one night, I mean, there are very many, you could, you know, read about this in many places on the internet, some wonderful articles, Smithsonian, The New Yorker, all kinds of different articles about the Fox sisters and the spiritualist movement. But basically, one night they decided they kind of got good at being able to crack their toes and other joints and against their floor or a table and make noises, you know, make strange noises. They decided that they would tell their parents, who then told some neighbors, that they were hearing thuds in their bedroom. They were hearing them in the walls and the floors. They were hearing rapping noises. And they were very scared about this. And this really concerned their parents. The parents went to the neighbors. The neighbors came in the house and everybody sat in the girl's bedroom at night. I mean, this is 1848 and a bunch of adults, not from the family, are sitting in a 14 and 11 year old's bedroom to wait for these strange noises. Well, they started happening. They spooked everybody sitting there. And somebody got the idea to try to have this supposed whatever it was in the walls and the floor answer some questions. And this is kind of where the whole rap once for yes and twice for no and, you know, spell out a sentence by following the number of raps with the letters in the alphabet. This is where it sort of originated. And, you know, eventually what they came to understand from these rapping and thudding noises was that this house had had a murder happen in it. And there was a body buried in the basement. And, Mm. you know, so that, so that was the spirit in the walls. They were, that was trying to send this message and it was sending it through these young girls. And did they They find a body in the basement? They found no body. Apparently there was some archeology span done down the road some years later and they found a few bones, but they were clearly identified as animal, like chicken bones and things like that. And from that, I think the girls March killed their 31st, pets. Little psychos. Uh, that that <laughs> creepy fox sisters <laughs> could be, could be pet cemetery in the basement. Yeah. Right? So the older sister, they had an older sister, Leah, who like saw the writing on the wall so to speak and actually was a yeah was a bit of a um well she was obviously an entrepreneur she rented a hall out and had them perform this and really from that they started doing these uh shows or um, spectacles all over the place they went all over and performed and people ate it up I mean, people really believed that they were hearing spirits and so forth. You know, they were very open to believing this. And it kind of swept around the Northeast for sure and eventually went across the pond. Uh, And yes, you had mentioned 
there was some pretty serious, smart thinkers who were big proponents of this. I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of all the amazing Sherlock Holmes stories and novels. And of course, Sherlock Holmes, right? Forensic detective, yeah. based everything based on the facts and thinking through things. And Doyle becomes this huge proponent of spiritualism, believes in all of it, including fairies running through the forest. And he writes hmm. a big history of spiritualism. But Thomas Edison was a proponent of it for a time. And William yep. Lloyd Garrison, the abolitionist, I mean, a big proponent of it. So wasn't he, Edison gonna, he was trying to invent like a phone to the spirit world or something yes, besides yes. his more famous phone? Yes. And it, so you, you just, it's hard mm -hmm. to put these two things together, these scientific minded people with what today feels like. Although it doesn't feel like this to everybody. There are plenty of proponents out there of spiritualism today still. Oh, yeah. Um, but, it, but it's so fascinating that, you know, you could believe, you could hold these two things in your mind. You could believe in this very new technology, scientific technology created by, you know, building things and putting things together. And then this whole other thing that you couldn't, taste, touch, smell, you know, see. Yeah. Really fascinating. I mean, the line between science and not science is somewhat of a cultural construct. And in the sense, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, in between, you know, his theories of gravity was also corresponding with friends about when the four horsemen of the apocalypse would return to Earth. And he was he fully expected the apocalypse to happen in his lifetime. And so less listeners think there's always this divide right between science and then whatever else is quote not science right oh absolutely now for and this older the older sister i admire their solidarity when you said she saw the handwriting on the wall i thought she was <laughs> going to be like all right you guys i'm going to tell on you and you're going to be so grounded as opposed to making money for the whole family so good for them well, yes and no. Yes and no, because it didn't end well. Oh. It really just didn't end well. They, yes, they made money, but like a like many stories in that ilk, fame and fortune does not end well. Maggie, the older girl, eventually, and there, this is well recorded in many places. She, in 1888, now this is 40 years later, she announced at a public event. And by the way, 1888 is when Pajepscott Historical Society, which we were previously named, began in Brunswick. A great year. 1888, she announced yeah, that it was all a hoax. And this was a huge, she, she was denounced by all of the true believers at that point, because they really had created a whole movement. I mean, you can trace, you know, the mediums and psychics and palm readers and so forth. Many of those folks today, in a way, back to these sisters. Now, again, this kind of thing has existed in different forms and and so forth for tens of thousands of years all over the world, obviously. Right. But this particular movement and the idea that this woman or female is a medium to the other world, you know, women are more sensitive and all of that kind of thing. And they can connect with the spirits better. That traces back to her. Well, she, so 40 years go by, she, she says it's all a hoax. She's roundly denounced. People attacked her for what they thought were ulterior motives and so forth. You know, it's easier to blame 
people then accept that something you've been believing for a long time suddenly can't be real. And that we know mm-hmm. that from the world today. But she then later recanted her story that it was a hoax. But, you know, the damage had been done to her reputation and her sister's. Maggie became a pretty severe alcoholic mm-hmm. um, and kind of had a she had married somebody who the, the, the gentleman she married had actually encouraged her to come out and say this was all a hoax. He died not long after they'd been married. So she she did not have a good end to her life. Kate mm-hmm. also became a heavy drinker. So it, it just it was not a happy story for them. But for That's a time, right. they were listened to they were on stage at a time when women were not typically public speakers of course the suffrage movement is going on at this time so the official suffrage movement starts like the same year that they did their act 1848 is seneca falls like that's some serendipity there there definitely is and i i think it's this desire on many people's parts to listen you know as Okay, so a lot of people didn't want to listen to women, but then there were people, obviously, women and other folks who were in support of suffrage, who wanted women to have a voice and a vote, of course, who were ready and willing to listen to these women who had something to say, and then many other women like them who took up the role of medium. Yeah, this is a good point. And it makes me think that there's other sort of supernatural, if you will, goings on in New England that very much begin with young women generally who, you know, many of their contemporaries don't listen to. I mean, the Salem witch craze very much starts with a bunch of young women making these accusations and everybody all the way up to governor of Massachusetts is listening to them. And I I don't mean to draw sort of a crude just direct it's all a cry for attention but and then likewise the great awakening so-called in in massachusetts in the 1730s and 40s many of the people who would have these fainting spells and fits and they'd see the devil and everything else a lot of them are young people young women um and again like in what other area of life is like yes a uh a 10 year old girl going to have all these adults listening to what she says and, and paying attention. Right. Right. Um, and so the, the Fox sisters in that sense, it very much seems of a piece with that. Absolutely. But there, there was something, you know, it was very different time. Mm-hmm. So they of course the were of not thankfully sisters. executed or whatever. They were instead <laughs> hooray, yes. listen to, and then they eventually make a buck, you know? Yes. Right. It was just a completely different era and people were ready to have, I mean, it was actually, you know, the sort of the second great religious awakening. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was a time when there was a, a big Protestant religious revival. There were other movements that were happening around this time, like the Latter-day Saints, the Seven-Day Adventists, mm-hmm. um, the Shakers, of course, who, you know, there's a strong history of Shakers in Maine. Yes. Um, and so there was just this more openness, ready to believe um, what was being told, you know, what was being said by them. But all kinds of other things in this era. I mean, we had this rapidly industrializing nation. 
with all these new, really kind of what must have been spooky technologies, the telegraph, followed by, you know, the, the telephone, yeah. um, photography, of course, which would become widely available and viewed, especially during the Civil War. Morse code, actually, which was only invented a few years before the Fox sisters. And they're, you know, they're using these raps to equate to the alphabet. I mean, it was it was a time of rapid change, rapid technological change. And, you know, similar to our digital age, where a lot of things just explode, and we have, we're not quite fully ready for them. And in this era, spiritualism allowed people to kind of cling to the past, hold on to some of the beliefs of the past, even as all of this other stuff was changing so quickly. I mean, Darwin's Origin of Species was published in 1859. You know, yeah. science was really calling into question a lot of things that people had believed. And it was scary. It must have been scary. Yeah. And there were other, the 19th century, there was less, we think it's all science. There's also, so besides this, you know, religious revivals, there was a a new, a ferocious new interest in vampires, like our ideas <laughs> of vampires mostly come from the 19th century in terms of the uh i mean i know bram stoker's dracula gets published in the 19th century but and he was he was borrowing from i think you know some like romanian and eastern european mythology but like there was a whole vampire craze in the states in the 19th century right and also people using those uh divining rods to find treasure and other things like that um, yes, which is the precursor to dowsers. And yeah. we have we have plenty of those folks today who who do that, you know, right. and are purported to be very successful at finding water with with a, a stick that they use. It's all of a piece at that at that time. All of these things are kind of coming together. You know, there were a lot of a lot of different things that created the the platform for this. And then things like the Civil War, which is a little bit later than the Fox sisters, but not much, 61 to 65. And then suddenly there's 650,000 dead people. um, And there are a lot of families that, you know, they don't, they couldn't say a proper goodbye to their loved one. They don't have a body at home. And death had always been in the home and or close by and, you know, bury people and have a funeral and so forth. And suddenly that can't happen. And and so so in the Civil War, you know, all of these people died and parents lost their children. And I can imagine that if I was a parent and I had lost my son on the battlefield and I didn't have a body to bury and see, you know, I might be susceptible to somebody who said, I can give you a message from your son. You know, I'll sit mm-hmm. down with you and I can hear his voice or see him walking around and share with you what he is saying. And I, I'm sure that many people that comforted them. Yeah. Mary Todd Lincoln. Yes. Uh, had mediums come to the White House uh, after their son died in 1862. So, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Which was certainly not the only spiritualist doing in the White House. Nancy Reagan famously had an astrologer. Yes. Um, right. I recently learned the astrologer had enough say that Air Force One uh, at certain points would delay when it was taking off based on when an auspicious time, according to 
the astrologer came along for various things. So yeah, like yes. this stuff mattered. Yeah, um, right. Yes. And uh, Queen Victoria, you know, Queen Victoria, oh. uh, she and Prince Albert went to seances. And after he passed away, she hired or in, enlisted a medium to to commune with his spirit and pass him messages and and so forth and other family members. So, yeah, it wasn't just, you know, random anonymous folks. It was some, yeah. some pretty important heads of state. So I have several questions stemming from this. And one is so thinking, you know, okay, this is a, a rich, you know, whenever there's lots of grief and desperate people, you have the opportunity for the, another sinister force charlatans to come in and take advantage. And I'm thinking guided writing, there was a whole movement in the late 20th century where there were profoundly disabled children who were not able to speak. There was uh, you know, some PhD holder who came up with the idea of this guided writing where he would train parents to basically guide their their child's hand to write out answers and this was debunked where it could never be replicated and so if if the adult is not shown an image but the child is and then they ask the child to write what they see it never works right but there's like a whole institute that was founded to propagate all this because you know these parents wanted to communicate with their children and they wanted to believe it's human nature and it's 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 just the people that take advantage of that is just awful because these people are you know they're they just want to be just wanted to be closer to their children i mean it, it, it's an awful it's you know an awful crime to take advantage of that and it's amazing to me it's a good lesson of history that something like that it basically is just uh, a descendant of the automatic writing that was done with the planchette um there's really not anything different about that at all mm. but you know maybe had folks who really believed in that known about this earlier history and the origins of automatic writing there would have been a little less gullibility maybe i think also some of those parents and families i, I think they just didn't really want to know it's one of those things of where course comforting yes. and you know you know who knows? right so you they'd just... say all i know is i know that i i know that my son was able to tell me he loved me or something like that you know and so and you know a lot of this stuff if as long as it's comforting and it's not harming anybody i mean that was obviously a, a huge hoax and and was harmful overall but in in general if you you know people go to psychics and they get a reading and psychics are very good at you know quote unquote reading the person that they're they're talking to and they're good at asking vague questions they're good at making vague yes. statements that will probably connect with something in that person's life but if that person goes away feeling more confident or you know, just better about themselves or whatever. Great. You know, what, it, what is really the harm there? You know, the, the other side of the coin would be if the psychic tells that person, you know, bad stuff and, and they operate believing that bad stuff, then that is harmful. But, yeah. you know, there, there's always two sides to the coin, I guess. Yeah. Well, the 19th century also gave rise to the confidence man or woman, speaking of this, Right. Were there uh, in Maine in particular, 
were there any particularly notorious spiritualists or mediums who were who were sort of called out for putting for putting on a hoax? That I I don't have a lot of information about. Undoubtedly, there were, but I can tell you about one in particular interesting connection with Maine and the spiritualist movement. And in Mm -hmm. fact, it's quite a significant one. And that is (laughs) when I was doing research on this, I stumbled across Camp Etna, E-T-N-A, Etna, Maine, which is literally 24 minutes from where I grew up. I'm a Maine native. I grew up in Pittsfield, Maine, and I'd never heard of it, but it's existed in some form since... 1858. And so that's only 10 years after the Fox sisters. It still exists today as a two-week summer camp for spiritualists of all ilks. So, you know, mediums, table tippers, if you've ever heard that. So people who lay their hands on a table and the table rocks and moves and all kinds of stuff that also is trying to send messages that way. Dowsers, All kinds of people come to Camp Etna for a couple of weeks in the summer. And every Sunday throughout the year, there is a church service at the Healing Light Spiritualist Church in Etna. And Maine is one of very few states where there is a chapter of the National Spiritualist Association. None Uh of these things I knew until I started really looking into this. And I think that question then becomes, why is a place like Maine, or why was it so ripe for this? Because this, this place, and there are, there, that's not the only one, there, there were camps in, um, and there are still places in different areas of the state today, Temple Heights in Northport, Madison Camp in Madison, Maine, there are spiritualist churches in Bangor, Augusta, Westbrook, so there's still this movement going on, Camp Etna was the biggest, and at one point, 3,000 people gathered there in the summer to be together, commune with spirits, etc. There were something like 75 cottages built on the land. Over time, many of those burned. Buildings were rebuilt. There was a huge pavilion for six or 700 people. And I think, you know, Maine, especially pre-statehood in 1820, Maine is as the outer reaches of Massachusetts, the mm-hmm. district of Maine, much of it was such a frontier, as of course, <laughs> you well know, Ian, your research, your, your own research, it, Maine was sort of primed to be this place where a lot of different belief systems would develop a lot of different in the, in the very outer reaches where there were small pockets of people that were further and further from a central government, you know, that's the, the quality of main independence that we think of today kind of originates from that. And that had a lot to do with things like the spiritualist movement being allowed to flourish in different parts of the state. Now, that's not to say there weren't, I'm sure, plenty of people that were calling out hoaxes. And I actually can tell you about a specific instance in Brunswick directly related to the Fox sisters. Oh yes, Um, please do. But yeah, the, yeah, it makes sense. And there were, there were a lot of Baptists and sort of very revivalist kind of uh, grassroots, fairly radical uh, religious groups in Maine. 
during the early Republic and after uh, of the type that, yeah, would have encouraged some some creativity in viewing the world and open-mindedness to the supernatural and all the rest for sure. Yeah. And even, you know, even in more modern history, if you think of the back to the land movement and folks who came, came to Maine in the sixties and seventies and still today who are, were very, and of course the, the era of the sixties and the seventies was very much you know, it's sort of when the new age movement began and free right. thinking and all of that. And um, a lot of that, Maine and Vermont, very similar states in that way. And yeah. um, similar, you know, very independent minded. So, you know, we have all kinds of stripes of folks in Maine. Mm-hmm. We've got, and, and all kinds of people on the pol- political spectrum. But I think most people would agree, many people here are very like, well, there are certainly lots of people that were set in their ways, like there are anywhere, but there are a lot of people who are just very independent minded and go their own way. Yeah. And and I just, yeah, I think it it's always been a state like that and and still is. So in Brunswick, I also stumbled across something pretty fascinating as I was doing a little poking around in the searching the Brunswick Telegraph, the Brunswick record going back to 1853, which is is the earliest um, we have it digitized uh, through the Curtis Memorial Library in Brunswick. And in fact, we at the Historical Society have the original ledgers of all the newspapers, bound ledgers of them. But, you know, when you want to quickly search something, it's great to have the database. And Spiritualism itself, the word spiritualism comes up with about 59 hits starting in 1853. But then I decided, well, just for just for the heck of it, I'm going to put Fox Sisters in the search. Uh. That came up with one hit, one hit. And it happened to be the paper had printed a talk that had been given at the Historical Society, no less, in 1894. Now, this the paper, this was a, a issue of the paper in 1905, but it was printing an 1894 talk at the Historical Society, the first building that we had, mm. which is around the corner from our current building, by a man named John Furbish. He was a prominent businessman in town, Uh, had a hardware store, one of the 16 people that founded the Historical Society, um, did a lot of good for the community, Mm. Um, fairly progressive thinker himself. He was giving a talk in 1894 upon dedicating the building, because that's when they had their first building. And he was doing a history of the building. Now, the building, this is on School Street in Brunswick, it had been a church built in the early 19th century. Hmm. And as he's going along, giving this history of the building, he he actually says one of the more fascinating talks that was given here was, he says, another meeting, which at the time excited considerable public interest was a lecture by Professor Lee of the medical school, which was then a part of Bowdoin College. It doesn't exist there anymore, but there was a medical school. And he goes on to say, in which he, Dr. Lee, endeavored to explain the phenomenon called spiritual wrappings. 
as manifested <laughs> by the Fox sisters. And I remember, says John Furbish, I remember he said that he found that when he held their knees firmly, they could not wrap. So he concluded it was a snapping of the knee or ankle joints, which if they were standing upon a board produced a noise. So we have, uh-huh. <laughs> we have in our own history, a direct connection to the Fox sisters, which was wow. so it was that was really fun. So, of course, medical, a medical man at the college had actually examined them, whether that was at a performance or seance or whatever in Maine, or he had traveled somewhere else to see them. I don't know. But I found that fascinating that, yeah. you know, clearly it was not just upstate New York. It was yeah. it was, you know, well beyond there. Have you found records, you know, from the the holdings of the the history center or 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 in the collections of of other mediums or or such folk operating in Brunswick or maybe Topsom or Harpswell in, I, in this period? I wish I could say I had. I searched uh, every way I could think of in our database for other examples of anything that would relate to spiritualism, psychics, mediums in the collection. And interestingly, there's pretty much nothing. There were some clippings about ghost stories or so-called ghost stories from a newspaper article uh, about Harpswell. And it was an article from the early 20th century that it was kind of a fun Halloween. Uh, Yes. Time of the year themed article when that stuff always gets dredged up. And there was another, um, you know, story somebody had written about about a ghost story in Brunswick. But as far as the actual spiritualist movement, really nothing. And that's not to say that there aren't things in our collection. I mean, we have hundreds of thousands of items in yeah. the collection, and it all depends on how well it was recorded in the catalog, of course. And so, you know, there may well be some things in there. And definitely the newspaper searches uh, warrant more investigation of all those hits for spiritualism. They, I know that some of those articles were referring to things happening in other places, but you know, there may well be more to investigate. I didn't unfortunately find it in the time that I was looking. That's okay. So folks who are in the area and want to to come see the the planchette, uh, is it is it on display this month in, in part of your collections at the PHC? Uh, yes, actually, we it, normally it lives in the drawing room of the Schofield Whittier House in that cabinet, but we do we will have it out uh, on display for people to see. Certainly on tour, if they you can you can go on a tour of the Schofield Whittier House through the end of the month, and all of that information is on our website, pajepscotthistorical.org. Um, I'm always also happy to bring the planchette out for anybody to to look at who is not able to go on a tour. But it's one of many, many, many items in in that room and in that house that are just fascinating. The family did not get rid of anything; they, they um. held on to everything. I do want to point out that although I'm obviously, you can probably tell, I'm obviously a a natural born skeptic here. uh, And Frank Whittier, who was the patriarch in the middle generation of the family, was a medical doctor, had gone to the medical college at Bowdoin, was the head of the gymnasium up there 
consulted for murder cases around the state of Maine was a groundbreaking scientist with regard to forensics. He created some of the earliest oh. um, blood tests and ballistics tests. And his daughter, Alice Whittier, who donated the building to us, became the first female pediatrician in the state of Maine. So there's a real incredible medical history in that house. Yeah. That's why it's hard for me to believe that they treated this planchette as anything other than <laughs> fun parlor game. Right. However, however, there's a big however here. Frank Whittier, who married Eugenie Schofield, so Frank and Eugenie, had three daughters, Alice, Isabel, and Charlotte. Alice and Isabel lived to adulthood, never married, never had kids. Alice survived her sister, donated the house to us. Charlotte died at age nine in the house, in a fire, in the kitchen. Her clothes, her bedclothes caught on fire from the wood stove, from the kitchen stove. And it was a horrible family tragedy. She, she, her father was a doctor, you know, he couldn't save her. A doctor next door came over. She was burned far too badly. This is in the, you know, basically the turn of the century and died that evening. It destroyed, you know, just destroyed the family. Her mother was obviously never got over it. When you think about it that way, could they have been so grief stricken? That, as you say, these scientific ideas and supernatural ideas can coexist in one mind. You know, could it have yeah. been something where they thought, gee, maybe this stuff does work? You know, what's the harm in giving it a try? We don't know. We have no evidence. We haven't found it yet. Maybe there's a letter or some diary entry or something that we have not stumbled across yet within the tens of thousands of pieces of paper from the family that we have. But it's certainly possible that they could have decided it was worth a try. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, they, there is in the kitchen of the house where she died or where she was burned, there is a large bust of the uh, Virgin Mary and People ask all the time, why is there a Virgin Mary bust, you know, in the kitchen of mm. all places? And we don't know 100%, you know, the reason, the reason yeah. why either. But that's one speculation is that she's watching over the family, you know, after this horrible accident occurred in there. And so that's a belief in, yeah. you know. The beyond. The yes. beyond. Yeah. Oh. Well, this has been really uh, fascinating. I know the PHS has some special October programming that people should be aware of. What's going on? Yes, we are going to have some fun. So last year we had a live game of Clue, a live Clue game in the house, which was a big hit, a sellout. It was great fun. This year we are doing a seance murder mystery. So this program is a really great segue <laughs> to, yeah. to that. We are using real characters, family members, and colleagues. However, we are taking a lot of leeway with what actually uh, the narrative we're creating about the murder itself. So lest anybody think that this is a real murder, it's not, but they, there will be real characters and people who attend uh, we'll be taking on a character and going throughout the house to look for clues. 
We are going to start in the dining room around the table and have a seance. And then folks will move throughout the house. This is October 27, 28, and 29. Three sessions an evening, 4 p.m., 5.30, and 7 for those three nights. And it's already, we've, we've sold quite a few tickets already. So folks right. in the area who might be interested comes with, there'll be canapes, there'll be a cocktail or mocktail. It'll be a lot of fun, spooky fun right around Halloween. It's a 21 plus event. So it's not for children. I'm sorry, but it will be a lot of fun um, right inside the Schofield Whittier house. And the plan chat will definitely be the center of attention. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that sounds like a, like a can't miss event. Absolutely. Phenomenal. All right. Well, in the spirit of collegiality, is there, is there something that a, another historical society or a, an author has put out that you would recommend to our listeners to check out besides goings on at the PHC <laughs> and your murder mystery? Well, I was trying to think of stuff that was equally spooky and Halloweenish or otherworldly or whatever. So I have a couple of suggestions for places for people to visit that I thought might be fun. One of them is the Lincoln County Historical Association, which is Lincoln County's just up the coast from us, it includes Wiscasset, Damariscotta, Dresden. Um, they have some great properties, one of which is the 1811 Old Jail in Wiscasset. And it is one of the most unsettling things I've ever set foot in. You go from the jailer's house, which was attached to the jail, down into this very claustrophobic dungeon-like series of small cells. And Lincoln County Historical is run by Shannon Gilmore, who is a great colleague and friend of mine, and she's doing a great job there. I know that they are having a big Halloween event themselves. They also own the Panelboro Courthouse. Oh, I've been Dresden there. That's, the, that's great. Yes. And so was John Adams and Benedict Arnold. So you're oh, in yes. good company. Um, we had a we had they, an episode a while own, back about John Adams's legal adventurings in Maine. Oh, good. Okay, yes. great. So that probably popped up. Yeah. They also own Chapman Hall in Damariscotta, which is one of the oldest standing houses in Maine, dates to 1754. So I think they're just a great, fun yeah. organization, and I would recommend the old jail. And then the other place I was thinking about which people may or may not know about. And I'm going out on a bit of a limb here because it's a, it's a different kind of museum is the international cryptozoology museum in Portland. Ah, uh, yes. Point. I know it. Well, they moved. They uh, did. They, moved they were in, in downtown Portland. So. Mm -hmm. They moved to Thompson's point next to or near the children's museum. And I think that's great because I took my son and a friend of his when they were, mm, maybe eight or nine, they were big into Bigfoot and every other mystical kind of creature you can think of. And I have a great picture of the two of them standing next to the giant Bigfoot model. It's a fun, weird, goofy place. Yes. Uh, I would, uh, you know, kids and adults. I And it's just a fun kind of this time of year place. Yeah. Do you know, by the way, and of course, their their mascot, the thing on their logo, 
what that big blue fish thing is? Oh, you're going to have to remind me. It's a coelacanth. And the reason why they chose that as their logo is because it actually exists. And so their whole point is that people didn't believe in this thing. And then it turns out it existed. And right. So it's not so we might end up finding the real Bigfoot or the real well, or whatever. There have been lots of been people, lots of people who do believe in that for sure right. today. So, you know, again, it's kind of a parallel here to what we've just been talking about. It's true. It's true. Well, Larissa, thank you so much for joining us. May your Halloween season be an enjoyable one. And hopefully we will speak with you again. Oh, this has been a lot of fun. And you have a good Halloween as well. And thank you so much for inviting me. This concludes our show. If you're in the area, be sure to check out the Pajepscott History Center. Join us again soon for a look at the surprising reach of the Ku Klux Klan in Maine during the Roaring Twenties and the reasons behind the group's success. Definitely ranks as one of the worst uses ever devised for bedsheets. That's next time on Mainly History.